Hi, this is Giuseppe. Hi, this is Anthony. And you're listening to For the Love of Sophia. A philosophy podcast brought to you by the Public Philosophy Project. If you have any questions or suggestions, feel free to email us at publicphilproject at gmail.com. Enjoy the ride. doing guys i uh, hope you guys are doing okay um weather should be better by now yeah it feels like spring today yes it does that's good yes. uh, and by the time this airs it's gonna feel even more like spring hopefully that's true it's funny <laughs> when i texted you the other day uh-huh. i was like it's beautiful out and you were like it's too cold for it is beauty. too cold and what i thought in my head is <laughs> but it's like how beauty sometimes needs pain <laughs> it's the it's the vibe of winter, even though it hurts. Uh, yeah, I guess I, it was just way too cold <laughs> for yeah, me to that. appreciate anything no, outside. I get that. Um, welcome back. Welcome back. And uh, today we're going to talk about something interesting. We're going to start, yes, with some specific philosophical uh, school, mm-hmm. and probably, possibly, we're going to start talking about more. Uh, other things. Yeah, we're talking about a specific philosophical, I guess you can say movement with a lowercase m. Yes. But from that, we're ultimately going to be like breaking it down into certain qualities. Yeah. and we're talking about certain concepts. Concepts. That might be interesting, hopefully, right? That definitely might be interesting. So um, maybe you guys have heard of it. It's called Stoicism. And it... It actually has had a resurgence lately, I want to say. Well, first of all, it's a philosophical current that originates in ancient Greece, like many of the things that we, we study. Oh, I get everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it is kind of, uh, it comes later in ancient Greek history, right? Mm-hmm. It comes after Socrates, right. after Plato, after yep. Aristotle. It's one of those philosophical uh, movement that, actually come up during a period of crisis in Greek uh, in Greek history, right? Greek is not the center of the world anymore, uh, so to speak. Uh, Greek is declining. The Roman Empire is taking over in the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. And uh, we can say that people, you know, with Aristotle, we have people thinking that to have a fulfilled life, they need to participate in, in the public sphere. They mm-hmm. need to be part of the decision-making in the polis and everything else, uh, this changes with Stoicism, right? And with this changes during this period of historical period called Hellenism. Um, this changes because citizens cannot, um, do not have access to the direct democracy as once mm. did. And also, in general, Greece is becoming like uh, some sort of a a peripheral uh, region in the new empire, we could say. And this is the crisis, you would say? Yes, this is the crisis. They are not the center of the world anymore, and they need to find new meaning for themselves, people, because, again, their meaning was participating in public life and making a difference in what they perceive to be the world, right? Mm. Now that doesn't happen anymore. So Stoicism, whatever it is, you would say it's it's a reaction, and it's very contextual. It is contextual, and I think 
that it works well today as a resurgence because we also seem to be a little bit in crisis, right? That's a good way of looking at it. We have a little bit of you know issues, internal issues, and is America still mm. the center of the empire? It is still number one. Mm-hmm. What is the meaning of life, people? Right? So there is a the big that, questions. Yeah, and again, if you think about it, religion is in the decline. It's at least it seems like mm-hmm. uh, less people uh, declared itself religious or at least being part of a specific mm-hmm. church. Mm-hmm. Uh, political affiliation is also on the decline. Yep. People are more and more disgusted with that mm-hmm. and they step away. On top of it, if you put <laughs> in perspective the fact that in the past two years we've been away from each other, so any kind of affiliation, uh, even you know friendships are being weakened, then a philosophy like Stoicism kind of becomes appealing. Okay. So the idea is that as we parse this out, it's important to understand that it was contextual and a kind of reaction to a crisis because as you guys are listening, you might think, oh, this sounds familiar. Or maybe there's a way of situating this in my own life or something. And so as always, I think the good place to start is by trying to figure out what is the everyday understanding of stoicism and now i always ask this in my classes um with everything but stoicism especially and fun fact yesterday i just did stoicism so it's like fresh in my head um and i always say what do you think of when you think of stoicism and i think the everyday thing you think of is like the stone-faced person who is unemotional, unfazed, unfazed, right? Who is unaffected or visibly unaffected. Mm -hmm. Or you think of Spock, right, from Star Trek. And so what I always say is like a lot of the language we use, it winds up being like a bastardized version of the original thing Mm -hmm. that still holds some truth in it, but ultimately winds up being not exactly accurate. So think of it like, a 2,000-year-long telephone game, <laughs> exactly. right? So we, we're like, okay, there's some of the message in there, but a lot of the important parts are missing. Yeah, and I think that what's missing is why mm. people are unfazed if they're stoic, right? Yeah. And is this some faceness, like the stone face thing, does it, does it calm, how can we say, um, what does it mean? Does it mean to be apathetic about stuff? Is it absolute apathy mm-hmm. or is it something else? Is it like misery, right? Because yeah. if you have no emotions, aren't you miserable? Exactly, exactly. And no. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, right, right. Uh, definitely not according to the Stoics uh, per se. Um, yeah, I agree with you. That's that's the general thing, right? The Stoic is somebody who almost doesn't care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but we also said that's not the case in reality, right? Yes. Um and I think maybe maybe we can we can talk about uh, this idea that well first of all I think we should say that stoicism is not the only philosophical current that kind of goes in that direction right mm. there are others okay. in the same time period that kind of provide the same solace that stoicism does mm-hmm. uh, with uh, there is a famous stoic philosopher that writes uh, a book that's called the consolation of philosophy, right? I mean that the philosophy becomes this thing that's there to console you, to help you, mm. to to help you get over your grievances like and your grief. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Stoicism is not the only uh, philosophy doing that at the same time. I think it is rather 
uh, one among others, the the main competitor, I want to say, mm-hmm. is this other school taught called Epicureanism, mm-hmm. uh, which take a slightly different approach, but that ultimately also arrives to this idea of being unfazed about stuff. Yeah, there's some overlap, definitely. Yes, there's some overlap. Uh, this idea of the Greeks will call it ataraxia, this, this mm. not feeling anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, the, the way in which these two schools go about this are different. Uh, but both ways, I think, inch uh, around some of the same concepts, right? Um, one of them being, in my opinion, the relationship that we have with things and with what is outside of us with possessions and and pleasures in general, right? Yeah, I agree. I think that, like, there's the thing, there's how we understand the thing, and then there's how we act um, as a result of all that stuff, right? Yep. So I think there's this metaphysical component there's an epistemological component, and then there's like an ethical component. Absolutely. So it's like we look at what is, we look at how we know what is and what is not, and then we we be or not be in certain ways because of that. And I always think of like the Stoic in my mind is Epictetus. Yeah. And Epictetus has the handbook, right? Yeah. And the very first line I always think is very important for understanding Stoicism. He says, some things are up to us, and others are not uh, up to us. Yeah, absolutely. So in other words, there are some people who believe you can control everything, yep. right? You have this almost infinite amount of free will. You're totally free. And there are other people who are completely deterministic, yep. right? There is 0% free will. You can't control anything. And Epictetus right off the bat is saying he's somewhere in the middle. Now, I think he's closer to the deterministic side, but ultimately, he's saying, guys, you can control some things and you can't control other things. And ultimately, all the bad things in life is because you confuse those categories. Absolutely. Uh, and I think you're correct when you say that it's on more on the deterministic side. Mm-hmm. Because in fact, the moment we'll go and see what kind of things are controllable and what kind of things are not controllable, right? It seems that the only things... Uh, you know, without spoiling anything, but the only thing that are controllable are the things that are inside your head, mm-hmm. and we would say in your heart, uh, but nothing else. You can, and you know, this also becomes a popular way of looking at things, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you can change the attitudes that you have towards things, yep. but not yep. the way things happen, right? Mm-hmm. And this is almost verbatim yeah. from Epictetus, right? And this is, it's like, you know how a lot of the time we have cultural cliches, yeah, and yeah. like there's like I always think of how people say everything in moderation. I'm like, hey, that's Aristotle. Yeah. This <laughs> one is like, don't worry about it because worrying about it's not going to change anything. Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> this is kind of a stoic idea. Yeah. yeah. So the idea is okay. Hey, you can control some things, and you can't control other things. And the key, well, one of the keys to the good life is recognizing that distinction and not thinking you can control that things you can't. Yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. And then the opposite too. Yeah. And but oftentimes we're wrong. 
Yeah. Right. We most think of we, the times. <laughs> most of the time, we think we can control things that actually we can't control, and we think we can't control things that we can control. Yeah, and I think that it's uh, and here's another overlap with Epicureanism, for example. Mm-hmm. The main component, the main how can we say, what they're preaching, those philosophers, is like you need to get in check your intentions mm. and your desires mainly, because. You need to understand that wishing for something that is not going to happen, that cannot happen because you have no control over that, it's not going to be good for you. You're going to be miserable if you do that. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, and I think that is the essence of it. Yeah. Uh, which is interesting, right? Because then, and again, we'll talk about this probably later, because that means that those things that we call desires are kind of strange because we think that we have to desire for things that are not happening, right? Mm-hmm. Your desire is something that you don't have now. And by desiring something, you're wishing for something to be in a specific way. Yes. Which seems to be in contradiction with the fact that, well, there's nothing to wish about because things are going to happen in a specific way independently of your wishes. Yeah, it's like think if you sat in the office every day and you were like... I really want a million dollars to just pop into my lap. That would be nice. Right? If you just <laughs> thought that all the time, you would be let down all the time. And Correct. And you would be miserable. Correct. So, if you really, really desired yes. and thought that could happen, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I think one of the big ideas that's related to this, you know, we can get into specifics, is like there is this thing called nature. Yeah. Right? And you want to be in accordance with nature. Yes. And bad things happen precisely when you start trying to want things as other than as they are. Yes. And this is the, the we were talking about the deterministic, right? Mm. Um, maybe a, a word about this word, determinism, yeah, right? Absolutely. This idea. I think we had an episode on it, right? We do. But for those of you who are just <laughs> tuning in now... Uh, this the idea of determinism in a uh, layman definition, if you want, is this idea that things can only happen in one specific way, and there's mm-hmm. no, we have no say in the way things happen. Right? Mm-hmm. I always explain it this way: if I am dropping a rock uh, from the table to the floor, no matter what I do, the the, the stone is going to go, the, the the rock is going to go down. Yeah, you can't choose. Yeah, you, you cannot choose anything. There's things that they're independent from my will. So I was saying this idea that Epictetus and the Stoics have in general is the fact that things will happen regardless mm-hmm. of our will because nature is what they call a faith, I guess, also, mm. right? It's this deterministic system, we can say, where we have no say. We kind of are... We are affected by it, but we cannot affect it. Mm-hmm. And we need to learn in order to be kind of happier <laughs> that the way that we can kind of, we can only monitor the way in which we are affected by it and nothing else. Yeah. And so one of the points there is I think something that's of an important point of ethics, which is. The default state of things, of how a human is, is not in itself good. 
what do you mean? In the sense that humans have a lot of tendencies that oh, the Stoics yes. would be against. So I feel like it's really interesting because whenever we wind up talking about Stoicism, we spend a lot of time talking about how they want you to be in accordance with nature. But how this requires you to act contrary to human nature. Mm-hmm. So there's this like idea within it that human nature is kind of almost by definition trying to get away from actual mm-hmm. nature. And you want to put these things in line. And the more we kind of cave into this human nature thing, the more problems that are there. I don't know if it's, if it's a matter of human nature, if it's more in line, let's say, with the teaching of Socrates, especially in Aristotle, mm. uh, meaning that at the end of the day, there's this idea that at best, let's call it this way, we're this kind of blank slates, right? Mm. As human beings. And in order for us to be in agreement with nature in this case, you need to learn how to do that. You need to become virtuous and learn yes. how to do that. And that takes work. You're not born a sage. You're not born a stoic sage. And that's kind of what I mean. Like you yeah. have to do something other than how you are. Yeah. Well, that's uh, nobody's born that way. You need, you need the works. Yes, yes. In this sense. I don't know if they... Uh, I don't know. Well, maybe... I I think there's a reason why I'm saying that. I'm curious what you think. The reason why I'm thinking this is kind of related to Aristotle. The reason is it's not easy. Yeah, definitely. Right? So whenever something's not easy, it seems like we have this predisposition to not liking difficult things. Yeah. And so I I think when I say human nature... uh, Nature. (laughs) What is that? That's like... A New Jersey accent saying <laughs> Nietzsche in the wrong way. Anyway, um, we have a tendency to give up. And I yeah. think it's like human nature doesn't like difficult things, but to live the good life, we do have to encounter these difficult things even if we don't like it. That's kind of what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know how I think there's similarities with Aristotle and then a lot of dissimilarities. Of course. And the one similarity is... Aristotle says you're not born virtuous. Yes. You're also not born unvirtuous. Yes. You're born with the capacity for being virtuous. And I think that's the stance there as well. Yes. You're born with the capacity and you could choose to do things that will help actualize that potential. Yeah. But um, especially in the beginning, it's going to be hard to be virtuous. It is. It is especially, and I think that this is the added layer uh, of stoicism, if you want, because they believe that most people do not understand the fact that nature works that way. They don't understand the deterministic nature of nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you need to be awakened first, right? And then eventually you can get and try to modify your behavior uh, in that case, or, or better, to kind of tune your behavior to what things are. Yeah, yeah. Um, the way things are supposed to be, at least. And I find it interesting that, I always find this interesting, that this means literally doing that. The fact that, you know, somehow the difficulty comes in understanding first, the fact that the world works in a specific way, that Mm -hmm. nature works in a specific way, and then the acting upon this understanding. Mm. And the modification of character comes with it. Yes. Um, Which is the difficult part, right? Yes. And I was saying, the well, first of all, before we, we go any further with this, how 
what are your thoughts on this idea that this is becoming like yes, there's a resurgence of this? Why do why do you think people are attracted by this right now? Okay, but, but this idea this is a good question. By this idea of you know, well, I have nothing. I cannot do anything. Mm. Therefore, I had to, you know. I think there's so many reasons, uh, <laughs> and then we can get into the specifics. But like in general, why? Uh-huh. I think because there's like something deep in the collective unconscious which is becoming actualized in the contemporary zeitgeist where we realize like we're doing something bad. Okay. Like there's something filthy about us. And I think people have this desire to kind of return to something that's simpler Okay. To something that's quote unquote clean. Like we see this kind of language either explicitly or implicitly okay. in different like political movements and ethical movements or whatever. Um, I also think it's because people were in the extreme phase of the absence of structure. Mm-hmm. So you can have a, a phase where there's too much structure and then that's like the absolute authoritarianism thing, mm-hmm. right? And then you say, hey, not all structures are good. They could be oppressive. We have to do something about that. And so you make the necessary changes to make it not so stifling and to allow for creativity and, and growth and things that are, quote, unquote, better, right? Yeah. But oftentimes people, people think in dichotomies. So you see, like, cultural movements swing back and forth like a mm-hmm. pendulum. Yeah. So – we respond to absolute authoritarianism by just going the complete opposite way, <laughs> which is no structures any of the time. My truth, my truth, my truth. No objective standards, no universals. Everything goes. Everything goes, right? Like the super relativistic thing. And I think deep down, people know that that's bad. And mm. I think they're. It's related to why there's an increase, even though overall the religious participation is down, there's an increase of this craving for something I could fall into to give me guidance, whether it is religion or a political movement or some way of understanding the world, for better or for worse, right? But I think it's related to those things. But once you, um, and I generally, we talked about this before, and I generally um, agree with with this pendulum swinging back and forth there i i'm just uh how can we how can i say surprised that this is appealing especially in the united states mm. because it is the land of individualism and it is the land of absolute freedom of i have the freedom of doing whatever i want mm-hmm. and yet this philosophy seems to go against for sure this idea of i'm free to do whatever i want mm. um because this absolute freedom, the Stoic will say, is an illusion, and he, at the end of the day, kind of goes against your possibility of living mm-hmm. a good life. And I think it goes at, at least partially against some form of extreme, at least extreme individualism, where mm-hmm. we are right now. Um, but maybe I'm wrong. I think it's a it's a funny combination. I think it makes us realize that freedom is a much more complex concept than we think. Okay. Because absolute freedom is like insanity. Right? Because if you think of absolute freedom as the complete absence of any kind of limit. Yeah. 
right? To talk like to go back to the Greek thing, yep. right? Um, like the idea of apiron, uh-huh. right? And thing. So if there is no limit, this is like the Hegelian bad infinity. Like it's too much, and I don't know what to do. Okay. Um, so you wind up recognizing that oh, freedom actually only works, quote unquote, when there's some kind of constraint. And the constraint is not infinity all the time, mm. right? Because to make a decision is to limit something okay. like, like this and not this. I'm thinking of a couple different like other philosophers here. Sartre, right? Yeah. He says, you are condemned to, to be, be free, free yeah. which means it's a very stressful thing. You're like, oh, my God. And this other funny thing, I think, is something that Peterson says, which he says, oh, I played this game with my students. And I say, I want to play a game. You want to play? And they say, yeah. And he goes, okay, you go first. <laughs> and then they go, what do you mean? He's like, you go first. And the point is, this is like the un- completely unrestrained thing. So yeah. as it relates to America, I feel like it's we're just understanding freedom differently through different periods of American history. Okay. You know? Yeah, yeah, no, I understand. That makes sense. It's, I guess so. Yes, I, I get it. I, I understand what you're saying. I'm wondering if, so while you were saying this, um, I was wondering if maybe there is a perverse way mm. in which uh, stoicism is appealing, right? Okay. And maybe this is why it's appealing. Uh, and hopefully I'm wrong, but so <laughs> <laughs> this idea that. The only thing that counts, the only thing where I can count is what's inside my head mm-hmm. and outside is everything fixed. Mm-hmm. I think that it uh, is perfectly in line with okay. this idea that I'm absolutely isolated and creating my own universe and rules. Good point. Only my head and on my screen. Uh, and that is it, right? And everything else, there's nothing else I can do about the rest. So why should I even be interested in that? Hmm. So why don't I create another universe, right? Another space where the only laws that count are actually the laws that I invented. That's me, me, right? This absolute, this explosion almost of the ego, right? Mm. This explosion of subjectivity. Yeah, good point. That becomes, that kind of becomes objective in a perverted way, meaning it transforms into an object, right? Yeah. And I'm wondering if this is like, okay, as the Stoics says, I gotta do anything about the rest. Right. The only thing that works is what's in my head. So the question is, is there some version of Stoicism that actually does the opposite of what I've just said and it contributes to the hyper egotistical relativistic thing, right? Where the only world is in my head. Yeah. Or okay. at least where the only world that exists is the only world where it, that it counts is a place that I where the rules can be changed or that I can access only with my mental and stuff. here. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't want I don't even want to say the word, but metaverse is what comes oh, to mind, right? Yep. This, this virtual all. Okay. Eidetic thing. I think the answer is only if you interpret stoicism incorrectly. No, absolutely. And right. That's, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying maybe we, we should are, explain it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what are the things Stoic says you can control and can't control? Because we've been dancing around it. Yeah. Basically, Epictetus says you can't control external things. Yeah. So like um, your careers, your reputation, your wealth, yeah. your possessions, and your body. Yeah. 
but then you can control like your beliefs and your desires and the things you're averse to and your impulses. Yes. Which means in reality that, again, and I, I always say, you know, if we take seriously stoicism, right, this means that you should be okay mm-hmm. with whatever happens outside of you. Yes. But it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be um, how can we say, interested in what happens outside of you. Hmm. That is the, this is your life, right? And there is a part in the end book where Epictetus says something like, where you're playing a part. Like in a movie. In a movie, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. There are no movies back then. It's, it's talking about <laughs> plays, right? But it's like, you know, you are assigned a part mm-hmm. to play in a movie, let's say, right? And you don't decide what you do. You don't decide how the movie goes. This is uh, the director, the writers that have decided that. And you're assigned a part. Sometimes, you know, some people's lives are like the life of an extra, right? Mm-hmm. Some people are the protagonist. Some people are, uh, you know, the bad guy in the movie. But you have no say about this. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, it is to, the, what is up to you is how you play that part. Mm-hmm. You can, you know, uh, complain and moan and pout and go through the movie this way. and Or you can play it the best you can. Mm-hmm. And this is what stoicism is about. It's not about, for the most part, for the most part it's not about retrieving from the movie even though there are some extreme cases where you can actually quit the set, right? Uh, it's about, you know, being uh, and doing the best you can within the part that's assigned to you. Yeah, and, like, I I would understand why, if you're first hearing this, it sounds like just kind of giving up. Yeah. And even apatheia, yeah. right? There's yeah. a Greek word. Yeah. But apatheia is not, like, nihilistic indifference, no. you know? It just means recognizing that you can't control certain things and just letting it go. Correct. Right? And so I think the thing that separates the thing you're saying from – well, one of the things – one of the things is already what you said. Yeah. Right? Like you should still play your role because you can do that. I can control how I am. Um, But the other thing is a lot of that movement, so to speak, is not just – me Mm -hmm. it's it's i'm upset about how the world is because it oppresses me yeah and when they say that they're they're um implicitly expressing a desire Mm -hmm. and an aversion Mm -hmm. i want the world to be like this yes i don't want the world to be like this and i am destroyed that the world isn't like this Mm -hmm. right and so this is like anti-Stoic because Epictetus say, hey, you're desiring something you can't control. You're trying to avoid something you can't control. And you're letting the things you can't control destroy you. And the whole point of Stoicism is to be unaffected by these things, like to not turn yourself into a pile of mush because you'll, you'll become stronger as a result of this. Yeah, and you say clearly says, like, we should not want what we desire but we should desire what we get yep want things to be how they are exactly this is like oh perfect this is what's happening that's good that's that's the way it is yeah but so you're saying that these people that retreat instead from reality let's say from again from the world 
they do that because they're miserable and they're wishing for something else. Something like that. Okay. I'm I'm not exactly sure that they all do that that way because mm-hmm. I think it has become such a, a, a habit, right, that is now becoming a matter of choice. I choose, independently of how the world is, the world I cannot change, it doesn't interest me much. Mm-hmm. But since this is this other world, this meta world, let's call it, is the place where I can make a difference because I can really change it and make it the way I want. Literally, it. yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that is the world where I can live because that's the only one that matters. Mm. Yeah, because it's the only world where I'm not oppressed by an actuality that isn't in 100% conformance with my desires. Or at least this is the only world that I can mold the way I want. Forget that I can I, bend around me. Exactly. I'd, yeah. the, the, the external world doesn't necessarily need to be oppressing me mm-hmm. in this situation, right? But just the simple fact that I cannot bend the rules mm. of it the way I want he makes it less interesting to me than the world that I can control, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, let me know what you think about this. I think what Epictetus would probably say is those people, A, aren't recognizing that the the me world, the metaverse, whatever it becomes, isn't the base level reality, exactly. right? It's still dependent on technology exactly. and your body. And those things you can't control. Exactly. The computer can break. You can get cancer. Like, you never know what's going to happen. Yeah. So at the end of the day, you can, like, run and hide into the metaverse that you have control over, weakening yourself because your expectations become so high that anything other than exactly what you think is going to destroy you. You're still going to get upset in the metaverse. You're right? still get, that too. But And then once the machine breaks or your body breaks and you're not in the metaverse, you've screwed yourself because you can't yeah. hack it in this world now. yeah. yeah. So it is a matter for the Stoic, and should be for everyone, right? It's a matter of governing these attitudes that we have towards ourselves and the universe, right? Yeah, right. What bothers us is not things. It's our beliefs about the things. Exactly, exactly. Which is, again, interesting, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because all of a sudden, we are, uh, which might be counterintuitive, right? But all of a sudden, we are sort of... Um, taking responsibility for the things that upset us mm. and kind of removing responsibility from the things themselves, right? Yeah, it's like this extreme ownership of things. Yeah, you're like, hey, I'm upset because, not be, well, I am responsible for being upset. It's not about you doing this to upsetting me, mm-hmm. but it is I am the responsible person for letting you upsetting me, mm-hmm. right? Uh, which is, again, very interesting. And maybe, you know, maybe it is in line with some sort of individualism, right? Of a noble individualism. Like, yeah, like an individual. <laughs> I was going to say the most ridiculous sentence. I was going to say an individualism, not an individualism. <laughs> <laughs> but so an example is. um. If people are wondering, like, what do you mean? How is it beliefs? I use this example in class the other day. So Claire and I are a little bit different with how we see lateness. I don't like lateness, but Claire really hates lateness. So she is basically like, if you're not there early, then you're late. Um, And there are lots of funny things we talked about uh, regarding her going to class extremely early as an undergrad. (laughs) Uh, But... uh, the point is, let's say we have to get somewhere 
by eight o'clock. Okay. Right? We're like meeting at a friend's house or we're going to a thing. And she wants to leave at seven fifteen. Okay. And for whatever reason, we leave at seven twenty five. You're in trouble already. You're in trouble. <laughs> because the same event is happening. The event is we're in the car driving somewhere, right? And we're going to get in the car and drive somewhere and get at there at whatever time we get there. Yeah. And that experience could be very different for us because for her, she's like, oh, my God, we left at the wrong time. I've done something wrong. I didn't keep my promise. You did a bad thing. So now there's this. <laughs> and now these people, like, we're going to look bad when we show up and we're not fulfilling our end of the bargain. Like, so yep. there's this, all these things. Yep. And so that car ride experience for her is very different from the car ride experience to me, who's like, it's going to be fine. <laughs> it's going to be fine. So it's the same exact thing. She's not being stoic. She's, and maybe maybe there's some good to that, and maybe not, because it incentivizes you to like, dude, let's leave at 7.15. What's wrong with you? But the point is um, we're both in the car at this point in space, at this point in time, doing this thing. Yeah. And it's... It's not the thing that's controlling how our lives are. It's the way we're related to the thing, our judgments or beliefs. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this is central, right? This is the main thing. You're supposed to uh, to be one way uh, towards the... You, you're supposed to understand that, again, events are events independently from you. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that matters is your, again, attitude that you, I, I keep on saying, your emotions, your... Your attachment to yeah. to this thing. So I'm thinking um, we've talked a little bit about you mentioned attachment. We talked about mental state. We talked about beliefs. We talked about desires and aversions, impulses. There's a lot more to say about it, and I think we can get into some more specifics about what this would look like practically, yeah. and also how far Epictetus takes it, because there is some pretty extreme language oh, yes. that people are like, oh my god, this is yes. crazy. Yeah. So I suppose we could talk about that in the next episode. Yeah, maybe the next episode we can do, look, we can do first probably we could discuss this this concept again in mm-hmm. a practical way. Today, what do we do with these things? Mm-hmm. What does it mean to desire things? Blah, 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 blah. Uh, and then we can go to this extremes of which you're talking about in the That's book. That's always fun. All right. See you later. See ya.